Welcome once again to another Humble Perspectives. As I continue reading in my book, For Such a Time as This, One Man's Spiritual Journey. It's a beautiful day here in Kentucky, the day when I'm recording this, and summer has begun, even if we haven't reached it yet on the calendar. It's a blessing to be alive. I'll be reading today chapter 14, which is titled Discovering Roots. This chapter will reference a number of books that I was reading in the late 1970s and early 1980s, but the focus of it is on finding out something about my heritage. I remember in 1976 when the book Roots came out by Alex Haley, how important that was. And, and uh, it was enlightening, I'm sure, for his family and for people of his heritage. And I was discovering some similar things about the roots in my family. I'm reading about my spiritual journey, so some of this will have theological content, as I was not only shaped in my inner man in my spirit, but my mind and thinking was shaped also. So if that gets too thick for you, just skip ahead. But this is really uh, vital stuff in the way I was shaped and formed. So join me now as I begin discovering roots. During the summer of 1979, the Servants of the Lord Coordinators authorized me to begin the Sunday morning service for non-denominational members of the community. Most Roman Catholic members of the Servants of the Lord believed that they were fulfilling the expectations of their parishes by attending a Sunday Mass and giving offerings regularly. On the other hand, Protestant members of the community usually experienced tension between their commitment to their local churches and their commitment to the servants especially those belonging to evangelical, Pentecostal, and non-denominational churches. At the very least, these churches expected their members to attend two or three services each week, to serve in the ministries of the church, and to tithe. Further complicating the picture, most non-denominational members of the community saw little, if any, distinction between our view of church and our experience in community. Going to church often seemed artificial when we already felt we were living church life within the servants. Why the emphasis on being members of a church anyway? That's a good question indeed, one that needs to be answered in the light of our call to community. We in the servants of the Lord and members of similar communities believe that God had called us together to be a prophetic witness to the churches. We believed that our God-given mission included the call to model a fully Christian, ecumenical, spirit-filled way of life, a life that would call the churches to repentance and renewal. If we all left our denominations to be in the community, then we would be only one more division in the already divided church. On the other hand, if we only went to our churches and did not live in community, then we could only talk about community. We would have no model that exemplified our vision. What is more, the call of God is to be obeyed, not only by hearing it and talking about it, but also by doing what we hear. As we began to discuss the needs of our non-denominational members, we also looked at what similar communities were doing. The Word of God community in Ann Arbor, Michigan, and the Work of Christ community in East Lansing, Michigan, had started Sunday fellowships for their non-denominational members. Also, they were working with Roman Catholic, Orthodox, Lutheran, and Reformed Church leaders in an effort to gain authorization to start Sunday fellowships for members from those churches. The non-denominational groups in those two communities had taken the name Free Church Fellowship. I contacted Mark Kinzer and Ken Wilson, the leaders of the Free Church Fellowship in the Word of God community, in order to discuss their vision and their choice of the name Free Church. Their vision was to have a fellowship in which non-denominational members could participate in the Lord's Supper and practice believers' baptism according to their understanding of Scripture, since we did not share the sacraments in the ecumenical communities. Their fellowship 
gathered on Sunday to worship by singing, by sharing in communion, and by preaching the historical doctrines of the church according to their convictions. They also sought to reinforce the practical wisdom for Christian living given in the general community teaching. Mark and Ken told me that they had decided that there would be two primary drawbacks if they were to identify their fellowship as non-denominational. One, they would be defining themselves negatively by what they were not rather than by what they were. Two, the word non-denominational could be construed as criticism of denominations. After much thought and research, they had decided to identify with the free church tradition. This name seemed to have several advantages. The name free church historically referred to the churches not sanctioned by the civil government in contrast to the state church. Since there was no state church in the United States, most Americans would not be familiar with the name free church, except for those who knew about the evangelical free church denomination or those from an Anabaptist background. Therefore, Mark and Ken believed they could more easily define their fellowship for what it was without the name carrying its own meanings. In addition, like most of the historical free churches, they practiced believer's baptism rather than infant baptism. Thus, this name actually did suggest continuity with some historical roots in church history. After much discussion with the coordinators and a few interested non-denominational community members, we decided to launch our own free church fellowship. Thus, in September 1979, seven adults began to meet on Sunday mornings in the living room of our apartment. Mike and Janetta Hines, Dwayne Roller, Gary Meyer and his fiancée Wanda Chaplin, Patricia and I. The only children at that point were our own, Elijah and Stephanie. Over the next few years, others joined us, so by the summer of 1983, there were about 90 members in our fellowship. We identified ourselves first and foremost as members of the Servants of the Lord community because the biggest part of our lives we shared in common with the other members of the Servants. The Free Church Fellowship filled out the smaller part of our lives that we could not share in common because of our convictions concerning a relatively few, albeit important, biblical truths and practices. In the early 1980s, in an article written to explain the Free Church Fellowship for the broader membership of Servants, I set forth our view of the church. Quote, A strong emphasis of the Free Church Fellowship is that the church is the community of believers who have entered into covenant with God in Christ through the work of the Holy Spirit. Because they've been joined to God by covenant, they've also been joined to one another. They are meant to be a visible expression of God's kingdom on earth in their love, faithfulness, and service, both to one another and to those to whom they are God's ambassadors of reconciliation. Unquote. For many other members of servants, church primarily meant a historical institution that had been established. To us, church referred to all those related to God by the new covenant instituted by Jesus, irrespective of historical institutions. To us, then, the community was, in essence, church. During our years in the servants of the Lord, my priority was to grow in a way of life that would support my faith in Jesus and my walk in his kingdom. My focus was to grow as a man, as a husband, as a father, as a community member, and as a leader. However, my understanding of God's purpose, my vision for the church, and my awareness of the, quote, cultural war, unquote, in my generation were also continuing to develop. In fact, the more I sought to learn a distinctively Christian approach to life, the more my thinking about the bigger issues began to take shape. About the same time that we started to think about describing ourselves as free church, some messages I heard on cassette tapes began to bring into clearer focus issues with which I had been wrestling since the Wake Park days. As I remember it, the first was a set of tapes by Charles Simpson in which he taught about God's covenant. For several years, the word covenant had been used to refer to committed relationships between brothers. The brothers in the new wine stream had seemed to use it most often to describe the relationship between a shepherd, meaning a personal pastor, and his sheep, referring to those looking to that shepherd for care, accountability, and discipling. In the Catholic ecumenical communities, 
We use the word covenant to refer to a formal written statement setting forth the commitments that described our community and its life. I was aware that covenant was a biblical word referring to a relationship between God and man, but I'd never made an in-depth study of the matter. Brother Charles' messages brought much greater clarity to the subject than I'd had before. More important, I was moved to begin a serious study of the matter for myself. Brother Charles started in Genesis 15, the passage in which God made a covenant with Abram. Brother Charles then went on to describe the nature and development of the Abrahamic covenant. Next, he discussed the content of God's covenant with the nation Israel. Finally, he set forth the key issues in the new covenant in Christ. By the time I had finished these three messages, I was more deeply moved than ever before by the surety of God's promises set forth in his covenants with man. I had a new and deep confidence that God was going to fulfill all that he had begun. What is more, I believed we were participants in a work of God that was to play a significant part in seeing his covenant promises come to pass. The fourth tape brought a holy and healthy check after all this heady wine that I had been drinking. In a message on the Abrahamic covenant, Brother Charles had said that the essence of covenant is not that one gives something, but that he gives himself. When God, in the form of a smoking firepot and blazing torch, passed between the pieces of the animals Abraham had cut and laid out, God was committing himself to fulfill the covenant which Jesus did fulfill as God and as man. In the fourth message, Brother Par Charles powerfully declared that when all was said and done, more than anything else, he wanted God's presence in his life, even if he did not see the promises fulfilled in his lifetime. I understood that it was vital for me to not lose sight of God who made the covenants while I was making a more serious search into the covenants he had made. A few months later, John Meadows sent me tapes of the messages from the Covenant Life Conference that had been hosted by some of the New Wine teachers and held in Mobile, Alabama in 1979. Many of those messages were a great help to me, but there were six in particular that have become part of my way of thinking and hopefully of my living also. Bob Mumford taught a series on the foundational steps into the kingdom of God. His messages were rooted in the often overlooked fact that the new birth has to do with seeing and entering the kingdom of God. John 3, verses 3 and 4. Bob taught that we change kingdoms when, upon believing and repenting, we are baptized. With real clarity, Brother Bob demonstrated from Scripture that water baptism is more than simply an outward testimony to an inward work which I had been taught. Although the inward change, the new birth, is a reality, in baptism we leave the kingdom of darkness, renouncing its tyrannical king, Satan, and enter the kingdom of light, submitting to the gracious government of the Lord Jesus. God seals that work by giving the promised Holy Spirit. Brother Bob went on in the second message to say that the the Holy Spirit will lead us at some point into a time of testing, just as after Jesus' baptism, the Holy Spirit had led Jesus into the wilderness. Matthew 4.1 and Luke 4.1 said the Holy Spirit led him there. It's interesting to note that Mark 1.12 says the Holy Spirit drove him there. Stronger Greek word. There he was tempted by the devil. This testing Bob called quote, undeception, unquote, describing it as a time in which God begins to show us areas in which we are deceived because we do not see our weaknesses clearly. Only as we see them clearly will we rely on God as fully as we must. Bob said, It is better to go into life knowing that I only have two ounces of faith than to go thinking I have a quart. Jesus' testing, of course, did not reveal deception. The devil was soundly defeated because there was nothing in Jesus that responded positively to the devil's enticement. Brother Bob called the third message the eternal yes. He called upon his listeners to make a once and for all decision up front 
that from this point on, when the choice comes up, I will always answer, Yes, Lord. Then, in any given situation, though it might not be easy and there may be struggle, one will have already predetermined to submit to Jesus. This greatly simplifies life. If, in any given situation, one has to struggle to find out God's will and to struggle with whether or not to obey, then one is bound to have much confusion and most likely many failures. However, if one has predetermined the outcome, yes, Lord, then there is only one issue. What does God want me to do? Charles Simpson also presented three messages at this conference on the topic, The People of God. It would be hard to overemphasize the importance of these messages in the development of my views about God's purposes. As I listened to Brother Charles, strands of my thinking over the previous years began to come together to form a far more complete picture. I became much firmer in the conviction that in the redemption through Jesus Christ, God was not simply saving individuals from hell, but that in Christ God is fulfilling his deeper purpose for mankind, which is to bring forth a people, a holy nation, a community of human beings with whom he will reign on the earth. I understood much more clearly that God is preparing his adopted children to inherit the earth, along with the firstborn son Jesus. It was through these messages that I began to realize that inheritance is a key to God's purposes. The new birth I was learning is far more than one's ticket to heaven. Rather, the new birth brings us into God's family where we are prepared to share in Jesus' inheritance as set forth in Psalm 2. As I listened to the third message, my old eschatology, that is, last things, the so-called end times, which had begun to change in 1975 when I heard Ern Baxter's message, Thy Kingdom Come. Well, in this third message, it was completely blown away. First, Brother Charles set forth the Old Testament teaching, especially in Psalm 37 and some verses in Proverbs 10 to 12, that it is the people of God, the righteous, who will inherit the earth. Then Brother Charles read the familiar passage in Matthew 24, which says, as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day when Noah entered the ark, and they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Then two men will be in the field, one will be taken and one left. Two women will be grinding at the mill, one will be taken and one left. Therefore stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. Matthew 24, 37-42 Then after a pause, Brother Charles asked, Now, who was taken and who was left? All my life I had heard that passage interpreted as referring to the rapture of the church, that the church would be caught away to meet the Lord in the air, which, according to 1 Thessalonians 4, 16-17, is a fact. But for the first time, I really examined the comparison Jesus was actually making in Matthew 24. In the flood of Noah's day, it was the evil who were taken away, while righteous Noah and his family remained. They passed through the flood safely and began to repopulate the earth. Then Brother Charles turned to Jesus' interpretation of the parable of the wheat and the tares. In Matthew 13, 36-43, where Jesus made it very clear that at the final harvest the angels will first take away the wicked and then the righteous will be left to shine like the sun. Not too many years ago, the Left Behind series was a best-selling fiction based on the premise that the righteous are taken away and the wicked are left behind. However, after hearing these messages by Brother Charles, I could no longer accept that premise. Rather, I saw that God's purpose for mankind has always been to have a people who will image, that is, represent or represent God and serve as his rulers on the earth. Genesis 1, 26-28, Revelation 5, 9-10. I know that some may react negatively to these statements because too many, to many evangelicals, what I've written will sound like heresy. 
At the very least, some readers will have serious questions. I can only say that these ideas sounded almost like heresy to me as well when I first began to wrestle with them in the mid-70s. However, through the teaching of such men as Ern Baxter and Brother Charles, the paradigms of my eschatology shifted. After processing their words and looking more closely at Scripture, I found that I needed to come to the Scripture using a different mental filing system to process and understand the biblical material. At this point in my journey, I'm even more sure that the way I was taught to think about last things was biblically, biblically inaccurate. There are a number of theories about eschatology that are taught as doctrines. It seems to me that there are strengths and weaknesses in the common theories. Over the years since listening to Brother Charles in 1979, I have come to hold a few strong opinions about eschatology. However, I have not settled firmly into one of the traditional particular points of view. Frankly, I don't see any need to do so. On either side of the passage quoted from Matthew 24, Jesus made these statements. But concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. Matthew 24, 36. And then later in the chapter, But know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief is coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. Therefore you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Matthew 24, 43-44. After Jesus' resurrection, the apostle asked him when the kingdom would be restored to Israel. When the apostles asked about the kingdom of God, they were not thinking about end times in the way many of us do today. So they asked. When they come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father is fixed by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be witnesses, my witnesses, in Jerusalem, and in all Judea, and Samaria, and to the end of the earth. Acts 1, 6-8 Truthfully, I simply cannot understand why so many Christians spend so much time and energy speculating about how history will end up when Jesus himself said so bluntly, it is not for you to know. All the time of the end is not clear. Our assignment is clear. We are to be witnesses to the ends of the earth. We are to make disciples of all nations. We are to baptize them and teach them to obey everything Jesus has commanded us. He told us that the end will come only after this gospel of the kingdom has proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. Matthew 24:14. Whenever Jesus comes, may we be found doing what our Lord has assigned us to do. There were other inspiring and insightful messages given at that conference. One given by Joseph Garlington as a warm-up for Brother Charles' third message on the people of God had an especially significant impact on me. In that message, still one of my all-time favorites, titled, We've Come a Long Way But Now, Joseph mentioned three books that recently had made an impact on him. The first book, Alex Haley's Roots, was important to Joseph, who is black, but it was also significant to Americans in our country. Excuse me. The first book, Alex Haley's Roots, was important to Joseph, who is black. But it was also significant for me, not only because it gave me more understanding of the history of African Americans in our country, but also because it stirred up my interest in my own heritage. The second book for Joseph was the Mobile, Mobile Alabama Telephone Directory but you would need to hear him explain why. The third book Joseph mentioned was Leonard Berduin's The Reformers and Their Chep Stepchildren, published by William B. Erdman's in 1964, which I purchased and read soon thereafter. Berduin's book deals with a number of reform movements throughout church history, most of which were labeled heretical by the Orthodox and Catholic churches. Some of these groups did end up in unorthodox belief and or practice to some degree or another. However, Verduin points out that each movement also emphasized points that mainline, the mainline church had ignored, or in some cases points where the church had even erred. Even though these movements became isolated from the main 
Dream Church and several have disappeared altogether, each emphasize something that is largely accepted in the church today. Such things as preaching outside the church building and small group meetings and alms are included. Though Verduin's book, through Verduin's book, I began to discover more of my heritage in church history. And it piqued my interest in the Anabaptist movement, which was significant in the development of the free church tradition. I wanted to understand more about that tradition because we were forming the Free Church Fellowship. I began to research the Anabaptist movement. Prior to this research, I had only minimal contact with Anabaptists and Anabaptist thinking. Dad and I had fished a few times on a payload owned by an Amishman who lived in an Amish community near my grandma Geiger's home in western Maryland. The owner of the lake was also a harness maker, and on one trip, Dad had bought a side of harness. Side meaning harness for one horse, contrasted with a set for two horses. He'd bought that side of harness for my horse Dandy, so that it could be used when we wanted Dandy to pull the buggy or sleigh. On one fishing trip, we had driven around that Amish community, stopping at several Amish farms to admire the work horses. In the late 1970s, Dad had pastored a church in an area of central Pennsylvania where many Amish and Mennonites live, and I had met a few of his Amish neighbors. I had been curious about their way of life, but I knew very little about their distinctive beliefs. Several years previously, I had read Mennonite John Howard Yoder's The Politics of Jesus, also published by William B. Erdman's a book that helped awaken me to the reality that Jesus' life and teaching, as well as the rest of Scripture, have implications for the social order and for civil government. I had found Yoder's book, as well as Sojourner's Magazine and the writing and, writing and tapes of black evangelist Tom Skinner in the early 1970s, a time when I was trying to sort out issues such as the Vietnam War, military service, and the civil rights movement. These materials reinforced the shakeup of the politically conservative assumptions with which I had grown up. The radical ideas propounded in the 1960s had caused me to question those assumptions, but through Yoder and these others, I discovered that some Christians who took the Bible seriously were addressing many of the same issues that so many young people had been raising in the 1960s. I was deeply moved by Uter's call for a radical commitment to Jesus' teaching and to his strong concern for justice in the world. However, some of the scriptural interpretations I found in Yoder's book and in Sojourner's magazine article troubled me because they seemed to be heavily influenced by the ideology of secular socialists. Skinner, Tom Skinner, while using similar language, seemed to be, to me, more truly evangelical in his core beliefs. I'll pause here. You may note that uh, I'm struggling with some dryness in my throat from time to time as I read, and it's kind of making it a little harder. But I'll go back to the book now. While Yoder and those who wrote for Sojourners challenged my thinking, and I found some of their beliefs attractive, much of the time I could not fully agree with their positions. However, I was not always sure why. A few years later, when I began to wrestle with, a develop, with developing a conscious Christian worldview, I started to understand more clearly what had bothered me in their approach, especially when I began to think through the way God works through several jurisdictions of government. In 1980, I read several books by Anabaptist authors. Three of those books have been especially important for me. Harold, Harold S. Bender's book, booklet, The Anabaptist Vision, by Harold Press, 1944, Robert Friedman's The Theology of Anabaptism, published by Harold Press in 1963, and Eberhard Arnold's The Early Christians, published by the Plow Publishing House in 1970, were especially significant for me. The Anabaptists were the radical reformers of the Reformation period. The most commonly known descendants of the Anabaptists are the Amish and the Mennonites. These reformers were not willing to exchange the state-supported Roman Catholic Church for state-supported Lutheran or Reformed churches. Therefore, they were known as free churches. 
The Anabaptists believe water baptism be the sign of one's choice to put his or her faith in the Lord Jesus and to enter fully into the community of believers. They refuse to acknowledge the validity of infant baptism on the grounds that infants are incapable of choosing to put their trust in Jesus. Rather, they insisted on baptizing only those old enough to believe for themselves, even those previously baptized as infants. Because of this, they were labeled rebaptizers, i.e., Anabaptist. Furthermore, Christian civil governments in Reformation times mandated that infants be baptized, baptizing, baptism having become the sign of a national citizenship as well as a sign of membership in the church. Thus, when Anabaptists refused infant baptism, they were not only in conflict with the church, but were also violating civil law. Like the Anabaptists, we in the Free Church Fellowship also practiced believers' baptism, but we did not suffer for our belief like many Anabaptists had. They were persecuted from their perspective, usually not directly by the church, but rather by civil authorities seeking to enforce church law in order to maintain social order. Scholars estimate that between 1525 and 1535, in Switzerland alone, more than 5,000 Anabaptists were martyred by Catholic and Reform leaders. Quite often, they were tied up in ropes and drowned, apparently a way of saying, if you want to be baptized, then we'll baptize you. The Anabaptist willingness to follow Christ and their consciences, even to the point of death, was a challenge to me. According to the Anabaptists in the time of the Reformation, the early Reformation leaders, Martin Luther and Huldrych Zwingli, were mo mostly reforming externals in the church. They were cleansing the church buildings of images and abolishing the mass, but because many of the people were not truly converted to become actual disciples of Jesus, there was no significant change in the level of Christian living among many Reformation people. There was no evidence of repentance in the lifestyle of most professing Christians. The Anabaptists believed that though, although both Luther and Zwingli wanted to see people become true disciples, these reformers also wanted to promote social stability. Therefore, they thought it better to have the masses in the church, whether they were true disciples or not, and therefore they failed to make a radical distinction between those merely baptized and those who truly lived the Christian life. The Anabaptists rejected this compromise. Harold Bender's book identifies the three major points of emphasis in the Anabaptist vision. First, a new conception of the essence of Christianity as discipleship. Second, a new conception of the church as a brotherhood. And third, a new ethic of love and non-resistance. The first of these two points especially resonated with me. Yes, Jesus made disciples, not Christians, and he commissioned us to make disciples also. Yes, truly following Jesus means actually working out our discipleship in the context of community, that is, within the brotherhood of disciples. While the third point had merit, I could not fully accept the Anabaptist interpretation that Jesus' teaching on love was a new ethic since Jesus had summed up God's ethic with two Old Testament commands to love God and to love our neighbor. Jesus went on to say that all of the law and the prophets, that is all the Old Testament, depend on these two commandments. See Matthew 22:34-40. A point which is reiterated in the epistles. I also thought their interpretation of Jesus teaching on non-resistance from Matthew 5:38 to 31 and 5:42, as well as Luke 6:27-31, went beyond Jesus' intent in that teaching. The detailed pres presentation of Anabaptist belief and practice concerning the church, baptism, and the Lord's Supper in Robert Friedman's book particularly got my attention then and has continued to influence me. First, a diagram in his book helped me to picture the corporate nature of redemption and of the church's connection with God. While his diagram is to some degree an oversimplification of all three positions, it does point out real differences in emphasis between the three streams of Christianity. 
If you were reading my book, you would see here the diagram or a duplication of it. On the left, labeled Catholicism, are several dots standing for the believers or disciples in the church, each with an arrow going up toward God, but going through the church or a priest so that the, the faithful or the believers, the regular members, relate to God through the church and the priesthood. The view of Protestantism, which Friedman sets forth, has the same dots at the, beating, at the bottom, labeled believers or disciples, with arrows pointing directly up to God, where every individual goes toward God himself or herself. The Anabaptist view he pictures as those dots with circles interlocked with one another and one arrow going to God, whereas a community, the believers or disciples, move toward knowing God. Over the years, I've come to see a measure of truth in each of these pictures. However, I think the Anabaptist view is a needed antidote to the hyper-individualism of much evangelical thinking. In pondering this diagram, I began to understand more fully that according to Scripture, God has designed us to come to Him as a member of a people, as a part of the community of faith. Every individual must respond to God's call to repent and be baptized. However, those who believe and are baptized in the New Testament were added to the community of faith, the church. See Acts 2, 41 to 47. This is not simple addition, adding on to the total number of believers. Rather, it involved being placed into a visible functioning community. The Apostle Paul stated this truth very clearly. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body. Jews are Greeks, slaves are free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. 1 Corinthians 12, 12-13 According to Scripture, we are baptized by the Spirit into the body of Christ. 1 Corinthians 12, verses 13 and 18 in the body of Christ, we are joined to one another in mutually interdependent relationships under Christ Jesus' headship, according to Ephesians 1, to 23 To come to God in Christ is to become one of many living stones, plural, being built up as a spiritual house, singular, to be a holy priesthood, singular, 1 Peter 2, 4, and 5. In Christ, we are fellow citizens, plural, and members, plural, of the household of God. We are being built together, which household of God is singular. We are being built together, plural, to become a whole structure, singular, a holy temple, singular, a place for God to dwell, Ephesians 2, 19-22. Friedman describes the Anabaptist ideal of church as a way of life together, a way of relating to one another. He wrote, it is in the present daily life that those islands of peace, unity of spirit, and true communion are being lived and practiced." Unquote. Later, Friedman says, quote, If the brothers are all genuine members of the one body of Christ, then the unity of the spirit is a natural corollary of this presupposition, and with it goes all the rest. Internal peace, brotherly love, cooperation, sharing of material things, and concern of the preservation of the purity of the group. Unquote. These statements could easily have been a description of the ideals of the servants of the Lord community. Thus, it's no wonder that those of us forming the Free Church Fellowship found this tradition confirming many of our own convictions and commitments. While I was beginning to understand this scriptural truth back then, I find that still today in our culture's individualistic way of thinking and living, I find that still today our culture's individualistic way of thinking and living is so deeply ingrained in me 
that all too often I think and act without enough regard for the community, the family, the church of which I'm a member. Concerning baptism, Friedman said that the Anabaptists in the Reformation period often referred to Martin Luther's German translation of 1 Peter 3.21. Baptism is a covenant, a bond of a good conscience with God. According to Friedman, a covenant is a pledge which in Anabaptist thinking works in three directions. A covenant between God and man, one between man and God, and also one between man and man, thus establishing the church. By accepting baptism, the believer, a disciple of Christ, now enters the brotherhood as an equal to the other members, or more specifically, as a member of the spiritual body of Christ, a quality shared with all other members. I cease quoting Friedman. This covenant view of baptism was another point of connection between the Anabaptist tradition and the things I was seeking to teach and build in the Free Church Fellowship. It helped provide us with a biblically-based explanation for our covenant relationship with the servants of the Lord community, which I've said we tended to view as our church. Friedman's book also stirred me to think more deeply about the meaning of the Lord's Supper. The Anabaptists rejected the sacramental and spiritual interpretations of the Eucharist, agreeing with Zwingli that the Lord's Supper is a memorial, a remembering of Christ's sacrifice. They saw both baptism and communion as ordinances, not as sacraments or means of grace. In itself, this was essentially the same viewpoint with which I had been raised. However, I learned that in actual practice, the Anabaptists put an extremely high value on their practice of communion, just as they did baptism. Quote, This eating and drinking and brotherly fellowship gave them strength and encouragement and the certitude of belonging to a company of redeemed souls and of being part of the true body of Christ. Unquote. Friedman wrote, and again, quote, such a profound symbol of brotherly love and togetherness provided a foretaste of the kingdom of God in the here and now, of the inbreaking of a new transcendent reality. In this very real sense, the Lord's Supper was more than only a memorial. In discussing the Anabaptist church idea, we spoke of it as a community of the unity of the Spirit and a fellowship at the Lord's table. This meal gave the Lord's table the meaning of spiritual sharing and togetherness the horizontal element to the Anabaptist church idea." Unquote. Prior to reading this book, these books, I had come to understand and had been teaching that the Apostle Paul's teaching on the Lord's Supper in 1 Corinthians 11 had to do with relating to God and to one another. Virtually all the numerous problems that Paul sought to correct through this letter have to do with wrong attitudes and behavior in horizontal relationships, behavior that was contrary to God's agape, to God's love. The specific issues that Paul addresses in 1 Corinthians 11:17 to 34 concerned the meal during which they shared bread and wine in remembrance of the Lord. And those issues are relational in nature. Namely, they had factions among them, and those who had food were not sharing with those without food. In this passage, Paul strongly warned the Corinthians' disciples and us that eating and drinking in an unworthy manner not, by not examining our own lives and by failing to discern the body of Christ is dangerous. The context of the whole letter and of this specific passage seems to me to make it very clear that the body Paul called us to discern is the body of Christ, not the nature of the bread they ate, but rather the state of the relationships they had with one another. Certainly, this holy meal is God-centered. It is the Thanksgiving, the Eucharist meal. We share this meal together as a community of disciples, as the household of God. In the special meal, we should reaffirm and renew the covenant relationship God has established with us by confessing sin, repenting, receiving forgiveness of sin is needed. This covenant which God first made with Abraham and then fulfilled by Jesus is the new covenant which must be lived out in human relationships. Relationships in which we are commanded to love our neighbor as ourselves and to love one another 
the way Christ has loved us. Furthermore, Friedman also wrote about the Anabaptist emphasis that in the Lord's Supper we should recognize and embrace suffering as an integral part of the meaning of this meal. Not only because Jesus suffered for us, but also because our formation in the community of Christ involves our own suffering. He gave several examples from early Anabaptist history. One example was part of a statement by Hans Nodler, an early Anabaptist martyr, in answer to questions about the Lord's Supper at his trial in 1529. He testified, With the bread of unity among the brethren, with the bread, the unity among the brethren is symbolized. Where there are many small kernels of grain to be combined into one loaf, there is need first to grind them and make them into one flour, which can be achieved only through suffering. Just as Christ our dear Lord went before us, so too we want to follow him in like manner, and the bread symbolizes the unity of the brotherhood. Likewise, with the wine, many small grapes come together to make the one wine. This happens by means of the press, understood here as suffering. Hence, whoever wants to be in brotherly union has to drink from the cup of the Lord, for this cup symbolizes suffering. In another example, Menno Simon, spiritual father of the Mennonites, used similar imagery. He wrote, Just as natural bread has to be kneaded by many kernels of grain broken in the mill together with water and then baked by the heat of the fire, in the same way the Church of Christ is made up of many believers broken in their hearts by the mill of God's Word, baptized with water of the Holy Spirit, and brought together in one body by pure and unadulterated love at the Lord's table. Unquote. Not long after I read Bender and Friedman's book, I discovered Eberhard Arnold's The Early Christians, a source book on the witness of the early church. Arnold, who had founded the Bruderhof communities in the early 20th century, opened his book with a stirring and enlightening introduction and survey that sets forth his view of the kingdom of God and the church. He then presented topically organized excerpts from the early Christian writings in order to show that his views were in harmony with those of the early church fathers. Most of the Didache is in Arnold's book, including the model Thanksgiving prayer, which is to be offered over the communion bread. This early Christian source, some say is from as early as 80 AD, certainly by the early part of the second century, this early Christian source used the same imagery of the scattered grain being brought together in one loaf. The prayer is, quote, We give thanks to thee, our Father, for the life and knowledge which thou hast made known to us through Jesus, thy child. Glory be to thee and to the ages. Just as this broken bread was scattered over the hills and became one when it was brought together, so shall thy church be brought together from the ends of the earth into thy kingdom. For to thee belong the glory and the power through Jesus Christ into the ages. Unquote. Quite likely, the Anabaptists were drawing from this ancient source, whether from a written copy or from an oral tradition passed down through generations and centuries. Their emphasis on suffering as part of the growth together in community probably stemmed from the intense persecution and suffering they were experiencing. This truth, like seed, was planted in me, but germinated and came to fruition in my life only years later when I was in a season of grief and suffering. When I read about the history of the Anabaptists and their beliefs, a chord seemed to have been struck deep within me, and it often seemed like I was being connected to previously unrecognized roots. I'd worn a beard and mustache for several years by then, but I had such a personal sense of connection with the Anabaptist heritage that for several months I even shaved off my mustache like the Amish and the more conservative men at night men do. When a few years later I discovered that my maternal grandparents had both descended from one of the early Amish immigrants, I could not help but wonder if there was any connection between my family heritage and that sense of roots which I had found. Arnold's collection of early Christian writings also added significantly to a sense of connection that I was feeling 
with the early church of the first few centuries. The idea of, that the writings of the early church fathers might be important had first been planted in me by my cousin David Van Hoos when he was my church history professor at Circleville Bible College. This awareness had grown a little when Don Schwager had used material from those writings concerning deacons and deaconesses while teaching those of us who are identified as servants in the community. Mark Kinzer had also talked about the way the early church practice of the Lord's Supper, as seen in the church fathers, had developed from Jewish understanding and practice. However, this was another seed that was working in me that I would more fully recognize several years later. I could go on and on concerning those things which, because they were so important for me. However, the point is that while we were developing the Free Church Fellowship in Minneapolis, many themes which I had been wrestling with for several years began to form into a clear picture. My vision and theology of the church continued to develop. I began to have a much higher view of baptism and the Lord's Supper. I could no longer think of them as only ordinances of the church, only outward actions pointing to inward realities and past events. Rather, I began to understand that baptism and the Lord's Supper were sacraments, channels through which God's grace came to me. In baptism and at the Lord's table, I have come to believe something of real substance is happening. Just as significant, I continued to see in virtually all my reading the centrality of community in God's purposes. In the midst of the hyper-individualism of our secular culture, I was thinking and trying to learn to act more and more from the framework of God's corporate nature, the three-in-one, which is manifest in everything that God has created and in his purposes for mankind. The changes in my thinking came out in the teaching that I did in the Free Church Fellowship over the next few years. Those changes have only deepened in the years since then, as my reading has led me to insights of other branches of the church including the Eastern Orthodox. Sadly, I've not yet been able to communicate what I see in such a way that it's manifest very fully, even in the church of which I've been a leader. However, I have great hope that the younger people coming up, up, coming up after me may well be able to lead our church into a new experience of God's grace through the sacraments. Although Anabaptist thought was an important source of the, in the development of my thinking, especially as it pertained to the development of the Free Church Fellowship, I was reading from other streams of Christian thought as well, sources that in the long run have had even more influence than the Anabaptist. I've already mentioned the importance of new wine teachers in helping me develop in my understanding of the kingdom of God and of covenant. However, my desire to learn about the kingdom and covenant led me to the writings of more mainstream Reformed theologians as well. Francis Schaeffer's work had already made a significant impact on me. However, Schaeffer, though a Presbyterian and clearly Reformed in his theology, usually did not write in typical theological language. Several of his written works were evangelistic, and he typically used philosophical language in these. The works directed to Christians were for the most part instruction on living out the faith rather than about doctrinal teaching, or they were written to awaken and mobilize the church to its cultural responsibility. Among several reform books that I read during those years, Meredith Klein's By Oath Consigned and his The Structure of Biblical Authority were important sources concerning covenant. About that same time I found, that I found Klein's work, I also came across Herman Ritterboss's book, The Coming of the Kingdom, which opened my eyes to the centrality of the kingdom of God, not just in the gospel message, but as the goal of all history. Klein built on information gained from studying the archaeological discoveries of the ancient suzerain treaties, which shed light on the structure of the biblical covenants. The Susan Treaties were the means by which the ancient Near Eastern kings established sovereign relationships with and over neighboring kingdoms. Klein showed that the biblical covenants follow the same pattern. 
Actually, it would probably be more accurate to say that the Susurran treaties are reflections of God's way of working through covenant, reflections that he preserved in fallen human culture as a witness to his way of dealing with man. God, the sovereign king of the universe, initiates relationship between himself and man by calling upon men to recognize his lordship, to submit themselves to his covenant, which establishes divine and directs the relationship that God has designed for us. Gradually, I begin to realize how significant it is that the Bible consists of two covenants, the Old and New Testaments, or the Old and New Covenant. I began to see in the Old Testament a series of covenants that led up to the everlasting covenant revealed in Christ. It began to dawn on me that there was no way to really understand the Bible unless one reads it through using the proper glasses. That is, unless one reads the Bible through the lens of covenant and the lens of the kingdom of God. Because Bob Mumford strongly recommended Rusus J. Rustuni's The Institutes of Biblical Law, I began to discover the writings of Rustuni, his son-in-law Gary North, friends Greg Bonson and David Chilton, and James Jordan, and other so-called Reconstructionists who built on the presuppositional apologetic and theology of Cornelius Van Til. Although I was put off by the bombastic tone of some of the Reconstructionist rhetoric, it was not long before I realized that I would have to wrestle with the applicability of God's law, not as a means of salvation, but as a tool for building a Christian social order. Largely because of their writing, I had to reassess my views about politics. Even though I had a strong conservative heritage, I'd been influenced by many liberal ideas from the 60s in my thoughts about war and government. Starting in 1978, I'd begun to become more deeply aware of the influence of secular humanism in American culture. It became clear that there were humanists who had an agenda and a strategy to remake culture and a society according to their vision. i pause here from the book to just comment, and we're seeing that worked out even more so these days. Back to the book. Schaefer's earlier work was beginning this week, awakening. His 1976 book, How Should We Then Live?, helped me to begin to see the issues much more clearly. But it was the Reconstructionist who actually forced me to begin to deal with the dualism that has come to characterize most evangelicals. The wars against biblical authority, truth, and the supernatural had begun in the schools of higher criticism in the late 1800s. The fundamentalist movement, led by J. Gresham Machen and other scholars, arose in the early 1900s as a counter to this higher critical thinking. The early fundamentalists usually were balanced and intellectually sound, seeking to re-emphasize the core beliefs of the Christian faith. Fundamentalists, however, came to mean something quite different as the decades passed, especially as more and more Bible-believing Christians embraced premillennial dispensationalism that had arisen in the 1800s and it was popularized in the Schofield Study Bible. This was partly in reaction against the theological liberals' conception of the kingdom of God, which is more humanistic than biblical. Evangelical Christianity, as I come to know it, was basically a pietistic faith, emphasizing personal salvation, personal morality, and a future kingdom after the second coming of Christ. Most evangelicals whom I knew appeared to think that Christianity had little or nothing to do with politics and society beyond personal moral choices, usually defined by activities in which we were no longer allowed to engage. No drinking, no smoking, no dancing, no card playing, no sex outside of marriage, and so forth. It was Schaefer and then the Reconstructionists, along with some of the new wine teachers, who made me begin to wrestle with the implications of God's word for all human beings and all of human life, including law, government, politics, education, business, economics, and art, and not just the application of God's word to Christians. Mind you, 
My understanding and approach to life did not change immediately. Truth is, I'm still in that change. Sometimes things the Reconstructionists said sounded like American political conservatism. In fact, many of those evangelicals who did not draw their political principles from Scripture also sounded like political conservatives much of the time. However, gradually I began to see that truly applying the Bible to society and culture will ultimately challenge and even offend both conservatives and liberals depending on the issue involved. I will never forget hearing Bob Mumford on one of his cassette tapes messages telling about a meeting in the mid-70s when he was preaching in a Caribbean nation where Marxism was on the rise. Without forethought, Bob heard himself declaring, Marxism is not the way. Capitalism is not the way. There's a third way. It's the kingdom of God. That declaration has stuck with me. I'm still seeking to fully apprehend the third way. Over time, I came to see that it's not enough to find a biblical position on various topics. I also needed to understand biblical jurisdictions. That is, to whom has God given delegated responsibility for specific tasks? I came to see that God has chosen to make individuals responsible to govern themselves in some matters. He has given families responsibility for some things. The church is responsible for other things. And God has also given civil government certain responsibilities. And with responsibility, God has also given these several jurisdictions of government the authority to solve problems and to enforce compliance within their sphere. Understanding these biblical jurisdictions, I believe, is an important key to properly applying biblical truth to social, cultural, and political issues. Along with the changes of this sort, the Reconstructionists were instrumental in helping me complete my rejection of premillennial dispensationalism. There are several views that Christians hold concerning where God is going in history and the order in which events will unfold. I will not fight for any of the specific traditional theories. However, I do reject premillennial dispensationalism, especially when it's followed to its logical conclusions concerning the history, the church, and Israel. I believe the gospel is the power of God unto salvation for all. God, I believe, is not only redeeming individual people, but he is also restoring every aspect of creation that was corrupted by Adam's fall. God is accomplishing that re restoration through the incarnation, life, death, resurrection, ascension, and exaltation of Jesus Christ as proclaimed in the gospel of the kingdom by the church Christ's body. I reject the defeat of the gospel in history that characterizes premillennial dispensationalism. I believe that the victory of Jesus' resurrection is unfolding and will be manifest in time and space history. This victory will not be fully seen, I think, until the sons of the enemy are taken away and the sons of the kingdom are revealed, as Jesus taught in his interpretation of the parable of the wheat and tares. Although I will not expound on it at this point in 1978 or 1979, I also read Robert, Robert Weber's book, Common Ground, A Call to Evangelical Material, and another book that he wrote along with Donald Blesch, The Orthodox Evangelicals, Who They Are and What They're Saying. Actually, he and Blesch edited that book. In addition, I was following as best as I could from a distance the journey of several former campus crusade leaders, including authors Peter Gilquist and Jack Sparks. These men had formed the New Covenant Apostolic Order in the early 1970s. A few years later, their churches were renamed the Evangelical Orthodox Church. These books and the journey of this group of churches was making were another challenge for me to look more ser seriously at the early Christian documents. However, unbeknownst to me, they were also sowing seeds that would later lead me to a high regard for much Eastern Orthodox teaching. 
Not only was I living in an interdenominational ecumenical community, but my theology was being broadened by exposure to a wider range of Christian thought. I had no plan to develop this way, but I've come to believe that God had a plan and that he's been stewarding my development. I began to see the church as a many-faceted diamond, an image I borrowed from Ephesians 3.10, which in the modern language reads, the many-sided wisdom of God may now be made known through the church. Other than in matters directly pertaining to understand covenant and the gospel of the kingdom, the latter primarily in the sense that that I put primary emphasis on declaring the Lordship of Christ. I did not talk much about these issues in the Free Church Fellowship. I had little idea then of the theological journey that was unfolding for me. <laughs>